2: Live multi Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, as always, my co-host, Steve Ovens. Welcome, sir. Hey Noah, how are you? I've I've had a week, but it it's been good. Um, our first question, Steve, comes from our interactive matrix bot. You can message us bot twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. It it's the like the best employee we've ever had. He doesn't get tired, he doesn't stop responding, he just he's there all the time and collects the questions and then places them right in front of our eyeballs as we get started with the show. So you can message that bot at questions, colon, linuxdelta.com. DJ writes in and says, any recommendations for using SSH clients on networks that are actively block SSH? To go a bit deeper with a practical use case, I have a device that I own. It's a personal unrooted Android device with no MDM. I regularly use it to connect via SSH over the internet to other machines that I own. Many public networks, e.g. cafe, Wi-Fi, guest networks, all of those kinds of things will block traffic on most, if not all, ports other than ADN443. But most of those will still allow straight SSH traffic over port 443 without requiring S-Tunnel or the like. A guest network that I use regularly recently quote-unquote upgraded its infrastructure, apparently including its firewall, in a way that no longer elects allows me to connect via SSH over port 443, causing strange errors that just go away when I reconnect via SSH over my cellular data connection. Still, would be nice to use SSH over an untrusted Wi-Fi. What causes this? How can I get around it? I'm aware of deep packet inspection and filtering as a possible cause, as well as solutions like S-Tunnel to encapsulate blocked traffic. That can be a pain to set up on some platforms. OpenVPN also has OBFS proxy, But that really amplifies the pain. Is there an easier way these days? Anything with WireGuard, Nebula, Daemon, Saw, or other newfangled things I've yet to play with? I've enjoyed the networking tutorials from earlier Ask Noah show episodes this year, a good review of the basics, but now it's also about the limits of my networking knowledge. I'm wondering if there's an interest in more advanced tutorials to deep dive further into networking. Kudos to Noah and Steve and regular contributors from the Ask Noah show community. Please keep up the great work. So a couple things there, I guess, Steve, uh, off the bat, do you have anything that you say, Hey, this is what I do when I'm, when I find myself in those situations.
1: So I have to be particularly careful that I'm not breaching some, uh, terms of service of, of Wi-Fi that I go on. So I do try to be careful that I'm reading those appropriately because when you are doing something like SSHing out from a network, your origin traffic is coming from that network and then they have some liability in terms of the thing that you're doing on their network, which is different than when you VPN in and use a VPN endpoint to do your traffic because from your VPN endpoint and the liability is there. So I guess my first disclaimer is I understand what you're trying to do and why you're trying to do it. And I've been there, but you do want to be a little bit careful of, um, you know, be mindful of the fact that they are somewhat liable at at very least the finger gets pointed at them when you do something like this and their source ip is exposed
2: yeah that's that's great advice taking walking a mile in the other person's moccasins you know that we i see this from both sides right because i on one hand
1: so i guess uh when i'm doing something like this i tend to use OpenVPN, or sometimes I use WireGuard. And again, with that idea that I'm using a a VPN endpoint, and I'm not worried so much about the terms of service. I don't generally just pure SSH out because then that causes things to have to punch through firewalls, and you're worried about deep packet inspection and other things of that nature. So, um, I guess. The easiest thing to do is as long as you're not breaching any terms of service, you know, have WireGuard connect out over port 443 and then just join whatever network that you're comfortable doing your SSH traffic from.
2: That's great advice. I see this from both sides because on one hand, I'm frequently the guy inside of a coffee shop or frequently the guy inside of a cafe that needs to get an SSH connection out to a server that's that's acting up and I need to go kick, kick its butt. And on the other hand... We also set up networks all the time for people that say, Hey, the only thing I want people doing is getting on the interwebs and browsing through the web browser. I don't want any funny stuff going on. So just block it all. You know, I've dealt with both sides of that a little bit, but ultimately what I, what it comes down to is one of the reasons that we recommend OpenVPN to our clients is precisely because you can obfuscate that traffic to look like any other encrypted traffic going over 443. And so because the packets are encrypted, they really can't distinguish what kind of traffic that is. WireGuard, if you go the WireGuard route, which can absolutely do what you're asking it to do, you can also have WireGuard only pull up and fire when you want to send traffic to that uh, specific destination. Um, and so that's a great way to go. And so, yeah, to answer your question, yes, WireGuard will do that, a new confangled thing that you might not have played with. Um, the other thing that you might look at is an SSH manager. So Things like gravitational teleport. And there are others out there. I, uh, we interviewed Gabe Ingersoll and so I'm more familiar with that product than others, but there are many out there. And one of the nice things about doing, using an SSH manager is a lot of times, Many of these utilities will just render inside of a web browser and then from the web browser you are on a separate box and then you're using that box to reach out. So it addresses a couple of things. First of all, your traffic out to the SSH manager's box is all over its HTTPS traffic, just like any other encrypted website. And then to Steve's point, the, the source IP for anything you're doing after that point becomes the, the, you know, in this case, gravitational teleport box, not, um, whatever remote network you're on. So lots of different ways to, 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 uh, to crack that nut. And it's, it's a great question. And I I do think down the road, we should probably do a more advanced SSH uh, tutorial and, and show you all the tips and tricks that, that you could use to, to, to get that rolling. Our, our first email comes in from Brett. Brett writes in and says, do you have a recommendation for a server operating system for my home lab? I'm currently running a Dell R710 with Ubuntu 1804. I need ZFS for my storage drives. Then I am running most of my utilities in Docker containers with a few virtual machines for things that I have or haven't or can't move to containers, like my actual router that runs OpenSense in a VM with a PCI network passed through it. I've been contemplating if I should upgrade Ubuntu or just move to another operating system. Thoughts? I should also probably move to a less power-hungry and less heat-generating machine. But that's another topic. Thanks, Brett. So, uh, Steve... I guess I'll start with your thoughts. What do you think? Is is, an Ubuntu, is is Ubuntu 21.04, is that an okay to be, or excuse me, Ubuntu 18.04? It's getting a little old in the tooth. Would you just upgrade to the latest version of Ubuntu? Would you start looking for other operating systems? Maybe, microphone mute? I'll, 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 I'll start, I guess. I would tell you, first things first, there's nothing wrong with, with uh Ubuntu. So if you have Ubuntu and you're comfortable with Ubuntu, and particularly if you've set up ZFS on Ubuntu, never be concerned about going that route. One of the things I love about Linux in general is that many distros will accomplish a lot of the same thing. And so oftentimes what you can do in one operating system you can or what you could do in CentOS or Red Hat or whatever else you could do in Ubuntu. So if you like it and it's working for you, I would say just upgrade Ubuntu. There's nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, and there's, there's really straightforward support for CFS, which is kind of nice. Now, I personally would look at something like AlmaLinux. The downside to AlmaLinux is you are going to have to use DKMS to get ZFS to work. And I absolutely would, if you're storing your data on there, absolutely use Uh, ZFS Um, so just be aware that there's some boxes to jump through but there's tutorials all over the internet it's a pretty straightforward thing to do works very well and I think over time with the code base rebasing on OpenZFS, I think over time that's eventually going to go away and it's going to be native right into the kernel Steve what are your thoughts for Brett I might have some connection trouble with Steve I'll have to see if uh uh see what uh See if he can refresh his session. Um, we'll move on to our second email comes in from Terry. Terry writes in and says, Hi guys, do you have a recommendation for a voice over IP system for business use? And so, yeah, that's a great question, Terry. So there's a, you've got a couple of options. The go to industry standard for uh, open source VoIP technology is Asterix and Asterix is a very, very powerful server component has been around for Basically, as long as the SIP protocol has been in existence. And so one of the things that I really like about it is there's a ton of variations uh, on on uh, on on Asterix. And the most popular, straightforward way to get rolling with something like Asterix is to use Asterix Now. Asterix Now is a distribution that you can just download the ISO, load it onto a flash drive. Install it onto the computer, and basically what you wind up with is a PBX system. So you log, get the IP address and log into the web UI, and Bob's your uncle. You have a working SIP system. Um, to actually do anything with it, you're going to add the phones to the SIP system, and just doing that is going to allow them to do Intercom calling and paging and that sort of thing. Then if you want to take it one step further and you say, hey, I actually want to be able to call out and talk to the world, well, then you're going to have to add uh, a trunk. And so you can go with a trunk provider like Vox Telesis or something like uh, FlowRoute, which is now owned by In 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 Wardo or however you pronounce it. Um the other option that you have is to use something like 3CX. And I know Steve uh if, I don't know if you're you're back with me yet, but you've used 3CX a, a, a fair bit, you've switched over to it. Um, uh, so I, I guess what I would say is um, check out 3CX. It is a business VoIP system that is specifically designed to work in a business environment. So where 3CX has some advantages over a traditional asterisk system is, is the following. So first of all, there is auto configuration of devices. And so if you... Purchase a phone, you can literally start shipping phones to your employees. You take the MAC address, you enroll it in the system, and the, holy cow, there's Steve's back. And the first time you enroll the, the phone, what's gonna happen is that phone comes online, there's a proxy server that actually hands off and says, hey, here's your configuration extension, blah, 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 and it configure, auto-configures the phone. And that's been, instrumental at all speed technologies because our team is all over the united states and so when we hire a new support technician we hire a new engineer we hire a new developer we ship them a laptop and a phone yep they it arrives we can drop ship that stuff straight from amazon or whoever we're buying the phone from we take the mac address we throw it in there say this is their extension as soon as that phone comes online boom it gets provisioned Um, the other thing is 3cx has an Excellent mobile app, and so you download the mobile app, and you're able to sign into your extension as if you were sitting at your phone, which means you have access to transfer calls back and forth, check your voicemail, uh, put callers on hold, all of those sorts of things. Uh, Steve, welcome back. Uh, thoughts on Terry and Voip for Business? Okay, well uh, we'll have to we'll have to troubleshoot uh, Steve's connection issue here in in just a second. Um, our th- our third email comes in from uh, Jeremy. Actually, you know what I'm going to do? Uh, here's what we're going to do. I, we have Matthew Miller with us this week, and so we're going to reorganize the show here just a little bit on the fly, and that's going to give me an opportunity to uh, to uh, correct some of these connection issues. This is the problem with doing the show live. Um, but Matthew Miller is my guest this hour. He is the Fedora project lead and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show, and it's a, a delight to have him here. We're going to talk Fedora, and after that, Steve and I are going to talk a little bit about our experiences on Fedora and some things that you might want to know before you start using Fedora. Matthew Miller, he is the pro- Matthew Miller, he is the Fedora project lead, and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. Matthew, welcome back into the program.
3: Thank you. It is always nice to be here.
2: Yeah, it's always nice to have you. So Fedora 35 has been released. Now, it was a little bit delayed, but the end result is better software. And so I don't think that's a problem. I don't think that's a bad thing. Tell me, what did the extra time allow Fedora to accomplish?
3: Yeah, we just had a few last-minute things um, where... the ever. Uh, our release criteria weren't being met. Um, some of the things with KDE Software Center or some things like that, um, where we wanted to make sure that everything was a good experience for people. I don't wanna just blame KDE, there were other things, but honestly, um, I am looking forward to Fedora Linux 36 so much right now, I can't even remember what the specifics were. Um, but in general, we've got a set of release criteria that we, our QE team goes through, quality engineering, quality assurance, Goes through and makes sure that you know everything meets. We run through acceptance tests, and you know if it doesn't meet our criteria, uh, we don't ship. So uh, we've been trying really hard to make sure that we have something we feel good about shipping. You know, on a really consistent regular schedule. And for the last few releases, last few years, we've been doing that, which is good for everybody because it helps. It makes it easier to plan. It means the next release, you know, you know where that's going to come out. You're not like already like it's time to be thinking about the next release now, uh, as I said, I am. Um, But if we're still like trying to get the previous one out the door, it makes it it just makes the next release worse and worse. So keeping the schedule is important. But we also want to make sure that, you know, our standards are held to there. So we we've always had this hybrid model. It's not a release on this day, no matter what, but it's also, you know, we do try to keep to the schedule as closely as we can
2: fedora 35 features gnome 41 talk a little bit about gnome 41 specifically the multitasking improvements that are featured in gnome 41
3: yeah so uh you know this is gnome 40 is the first really big uh refresh rethink of the basic desktop environment since gnome 3 launched quite a while ago. And um, as I think people probably know, that was kind of a rough adoption. And a lot of people, you know, weren't ready for that change. Uh, GNOME 3 has actually slowly you know, taken taken feedback and improved, you know, different usability areas since that first pretty pretty stark release where it was kind of a, here's our minimalist position. Um, and so GNOME 40 was actually, you know, it's like time, time to look at the next steps here and Actually, a huge amount of user research went into that to try and make sure that you know it was what people wanted. People wouldn't be surprised by the big changes, and I think it really paid off. It's a it's a nice improvement. There's a lot of under the hood things, but also uh, a little more usable uh, GUI, I think. Um, and so GNOME 40 just kind of uh, 41 builds on that. Uh, there's some nice things for multi monitor things where uh, you can have different workspaces on both monitors or not as your own choice Um, and there's a thing I like there's a power setting thing for laptops nicely exposed in the menu some little little tweaks like that that are nice Um, some of the settings um, again um, multitasking are improved the yeah in in the settings uh, control panel you can decide to turn on and off the hot panel you can turn on and off active screen edges these are features that have always been there but you know you get more control over them and you can also choose if you want to have uh, multiple workspaces at a fixed number or have them spawn and despawn on the fly. So we, uh, your feedback showed a lot of people have different opinions about that. So these kind of things are all uh, as a, options there now.
2: As a system administrator, Matthew, I often find myself having to remote into Windows PCs. It's not uncommon for me at all to come on site to a client and they'll say, hey, the server isn't working. Well, what's the first thing I'm going to do? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is get onto the network and I'm going to see if I can RDP into the server. And if I can get access to the server, then maybe we can figure out what their real problem is. And if I can't get access to the server, then I'm going to go search for a physical way to access it. And GNOME 41 has improved uh, the remote desktop capabilities. Talk about the new remote desktop client.
3: Yeah, there's a thing called Connections that is it there, and um, full disclosure, I have not been a working as admin for, like, 10 years now, so I am, um, you know, unlike people who have to do that for their jobs, I'm, all, I'm only hearing about it, so I appreciate your perspective on it, actually. Um, so, But previously, uh, this was actually a feature in GNOME Boxes, which is a tool for virtual machines, so the idea was that, you know, this was kind of, all of your systems connecting things were there, and... Really, I think a lot of people were finding that didn't make sense. People weren't discovering it there and so on. So they moved that remote desktop functionality to a separate application with kind of a similar look and feel to boxes, but dedicated towards that remote desktop need. So I think that's a good idea. We're actually looking at that in the Fedora Desktop Workstation team, uh, looking at something like that for Toolbox as well, which is local container management for your own personal workflows, kind of separating that out and making that a similar tool as well.
2: Matthew, talk a little bit about the power panel that pops out in the PowerSaver. How are these features useful on the desktop?
3: Yeah, so obviously it's much more useful on a laptop than on a uh, workstation desktop computer. I'm not actually sure if they appear if you don't have batteries, but basically it lets you select the power consumption profile between performance, balance, power saver, and so on. And this is actually something that plumbs all the way from the GNOME desktop to this uh, UI there down to the kernel level. It's actually, as I understand it, the driver here was written by Mark from Lenovo, who actually is the person we work with on the ThinkPad team that we worked with in the Fedora on Lenovo systems thing. Um, And so this actually, this feature for actually exposing power information at the low kernel level laptop profiles goes all the way up through the desktop and kind of that nice plumbed through experience of you can actually set your user profiles right there from the menu. And it actually, it's not like a hacked on thing. It actually is going down into kernel level changes to affect how the laptop's performance is scheduled.
2: Fedora Kenanite is an immutable operating system. So, Matthew, can you talk a little bit about what an immutable operating system is, how it's different from Fedora Silverblue, and what use case Kenanite and Silverblue are targeted for?
3: Yeah, so basically, um, I think... Colin Walters, who uh, wrote RPMOS tree technology, this is based on, would probably give me a lecture if I say immutable, because it's actually not quite that it's immutable. You actually, we're not shipping an unchangeable write-only image, but it's actually a um, managed. Uh, base OS image, where it is, instead of it being like, it, it's not just that it's frozen, but that it is tracked like a get tree, basically, uh, so that you can roll back, go forward, and you can also even layer local changes on top of it. So it's different from an immutable OS, but it is kind of in that same family of approaches where instead of your operating system you know, root, where the, basically all the you know software comes with the OS lives instead of that being something that you, you know, basically compose locally it's something that is composed as a system and then delivered to you as a system so this is an ideas that came from uh, you know the atomic project red hat's atomic project fedora atomic and coreos and so this is now what's used in fedora coreos today it's used in our fedora iot edition as well I And mean, basically these are cases where you might have you know a large fleet of machines out there in uh, you know, cloud or in, you know, edge situations, and you want them to be manageable as if they are consistent systems. I think, you know, as a sysadmin, you can probably relate to the value of this. Uh, when you have systems that are basically composed by, you know, installing packages or by, uh, you know, even compiling things locally, it doesn't take very long for every system to, become unique. Even if you're using config management and you're trying to keep them all the same, the the ordering and all the stuff, uh, every system becomes its own unique puzzle, which makes debugging hard. So This is technology that first kind of came from the server world, but uh, Silverblue, which uses a GNOME environment, very much like Fedora Workstation, and Kinoite, which is KDE-based, are desktop environments using the same technology. And the advantage of this, uh, so one thing is, it's going to make it easier to have large-scale, you know, if, if you have a production deployment of Linux on the desktop at your company. It makes it easier to manage it in the same way that managing a fleet of services that way. And then it's also going to be easier for, you know, laptop companies, people shipping Fedora Linux on their systems to ship something that they feel comfortable that they can provide, you know, customer support for. Because again, every system, you know, you can, um, you can identify what the state of the software is on it. And it is not having to try and you know, debug an individual unique machine every time when you're trying to do that. Um, It also, kind of just by its nature, makes a strong separation between that OS level and user level thing. So for the desktop environment, we recommend installing applications as flat packs on top of that. So they're installed basically, they can be installed system-wide, but they're not, the system-wide applications kind of live in a different place than the actual OS. So they can be updated at a completely different cadence, and they can even for example, if it are Linux uh 35 just came out, and it may be that uh, since Fedora is fast-moving, you know, some version of your pre- your favorite software actually you know, uh, has a bug or lost a feature or uh, you're not ready to you know, change the UI and you're not ready to go to that new version of that application yet, you could keep running the previous one, the, the Flatpak for the previous one, just fine on top of the newer base operating system. Or conversely, if you want to grab a nightly version of something, it's easy to put that there. And you know, the traditional Traditional distro model really has everything tightly integrated together, and sometimes it's harder to do that. So having that separation kind of gives more flexibility to applications.
2: Have you considered uh, expanding the concept of, of separating user space and 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 uh, and, I, and I guess the the rest of the base OS to create? A form of a kiosk. I know one of the use cases that we come across all the time is people that they want a public computer that they want to install an operating system on. They want people to be able to jump onto a browser and browse the internet and and check their email and do all the things, and then they don't want those people to be able to destroy, uh, modify or damage the computer. They essentially want it to come back the same way it was every single time. Has there been any talk or any consideration about, hey, can we expand that to make the user space, again, I'm going to use the word immutable, understand yeah. that there's a, a disclaimer there. But uh, any thought or consideration to making the user space immutable as well so that the computer is just as it installs, you use it as it is. Every time it reboots, it just comes back to the, the way it was configured.
3: Yeah, I actually know there is some work on kiosk mode stuff that is going on. I don't I don't know the details of it, but that is in progress. Um, probably someone else could fill you in more on that. But I know that there is – there are – that use case is important for this, and there is some work being done on it. Absolutely.
2: Very cool. Let's talk a little bit about Wire Plumber Session Manager. Um, obviously, with Fedora 34, uh, we we saw some changes to the audio subsystem, and now we have Wire Plumber Session Manager. Talk a little bit about Wire Plumber Session Manager, how that relates to PipeWire, and what all of this does. How does it work?
3: So... PipeWire, you know, it's a new audio interface tool for Linux in general, and it basically needs something to uh, detect and configure your devices, and keep track of your preferred devices, and uh, manage which streams go where, and so on. Um, and there was a example session manager that handled those things before, and WirePlumber is basically a dedicated piece of software um, that is a little more advanced and um, more flexible, but also hopefully more robust than the example thing um, to do that session management. And so, um, yeah, it's basically a drop-in replacement for the the built-in thing, but um, has better integration with the desktop, um, better scriptable policies, things like that that you can use um, to set up your uh, audio environment just so.
2: How has Fedora 35 been received by the community? Um, Have you gotten a lot of feedback of people saying, hey, this is really great. I've upgraded. Everything has been perfect. Some feedback coming in saying, hey, I upgraded and there's some improvements or some bugs. What's been the general reception?
3: Uh, It's been very positive. Um, I've seen uptake. I still don't have all my numbers in yet. They kind of come in a delay because of the way our stats gathering is we have non-invasive stats gathering so i kind of have to wait for observations of what i what i see from our mirror networks um but uh yeah the overall release seems to be very well received one thing i noticed um, we have a help forum ask fedora and our traffic on ask fedora was like five to ten times what it normally is after a release and i don't think that's because there's problems i think that you know that form has gotten more visible, but also I think there's probably a lot of interest in this release that is just shown in that. So that's very cool. Uh, one of the particular things, actually, since we just talked about um, Wireplumber, um, there was some ordering case where in those, um, in some upgrade situations, it didn't get switched over to the new one and people were left without audio. Um, so I actually saw that problem a lot. There's an easy fix. And actually, we've, we have a common bugs wiki page where we document... Um, those kind of things, and the solution was right there, but uh, obviously that's not visible enough, and uh, it's kind of hard. You know, people don't want to read documentation. It's fair. Um, So we're trying to figure out how to make things like that more visible for when people might run into those in future releases just to make that more polished. But overall, I think that's very, very few negative reports and actually i'm always braced for some kind of thing and i I don't think i saw anything super negative this time around so uh uh and then also a lot of positive so i think it's going very well so far There's
2: obviously a lot of things that change from one release to the next. Can you talk about something that has changed in Fedora 35 that you're particularly proud of? Somebody sits down and says, I've used Fedora like myself. I've used Fedora from Fedora Core 1 all the way up. What are the most exciting things for me to look forward to in Fedora 35?
3: So I think this one isn't super dramatic. I think it's more of a polish release, and I, I, that kind of fits into the, you know, we took a little longer to make sure it, it was out. Um, but I think, like, for example, the GNOME 41 stuff, there's those little changes um, that are, it's kind of in response to feedback after the GNOME forty release. Um so honestly I don't think you'll see a dramatic splash around this time around and, you know, sometimes that's good. We wanna we wanna keep it exciting, but we also want to just kind of work on little incremental improvements sometime. And I think this is more of a uh, incremental improvement release. Um, I, I do think, you know, if you are a GNOME user, that power management stuff is there. And another thing, uh GNOME software is much, much improved now. It's a much nicer experience, better performance, better UI better um, layout overall and has a nice uh, also uh, the what, one of the uh, difficulties is presenting all of the software that's available to you and kind of showing you where it comes from and you know whether it's open source and if you've enabled third-party repositories you know what what that means and where it comes from and it has some nice uh, things around kind of showing you hey this is open source it's built by the community and uh I, I love it um so that, that's a thing you'll notice if you, if you look through there.
2: Can you talk a little bit about the FIRST Foundation and the updates to key programming languages, system library packages, and why that is important for developers?
3: Yeah, absolutely. That's, you know, Fedora has our four foundations, Freedom, Friends, Features, and FIRST. And FIRST, one of the things is we try to make sure that we're giving, you know, the newest software uh, not, not not bleeding edge, but as soon as it 's ready to go, we try to get it out to you and so that means you know we have new versions of compilers, new language stacks, basically every release and yeah, as a developer, especially some of those emerging languages go rust all those kind of things like there 's new features that people are demanding uh, that that are available there, and so that 's one of the driving factors for people to use Fedora Linux as an operating system. Um, And uh, one of the things, though, I am pretty happy about the way we do this, we find a balance between getting all those things to you and getting them to you in this usable way. That's why we have releases rather than being a rolling release. So these big boundaries kind of hit, you know, at the Fedora Linux release day. And then, since we support each release with an overlap, so there's 13 months of support for each release, you can actually decide, you know, when during the next seven months you want to upgrade. You can upgrade right away, or you can wait. You know, you can skip a whole release if you want, if you weren't quite ready for that change to be there yet. But it's available to you uh, in the newer release as well.
2: Now that Fedora 35 is out, the the march continues towards Fedora 36, as you mentioned towards the top of the the interview. Tell me a little bit about the plans. Where are you guys at? How are things going? What are you looking forward to? What are you currently working on?
3: Yeah, so we are in the the planning period where people are basically submitting their changes and you know, saying, what are the kind of things we're going to plan to do here? We're going to discuss those kind of things. You know, we're designing what the wallpaper is going to like, look like. Um, those kind of things. Uh, so we've got I don't know, about 20 different changes in at this point that are approved. Some of them are... Uh, like you said, the language stacks being updated. Some of them are things um, a little more controversy, like um, dropping support for NIS and NIS Plus, um, which are some fairly old but still well-used um, tools for managing authentication across the network um, in old Unix shops. Um, so that, that had some discussion. Um, and we also have some under-the-hood things where binaries are getting a little bit of metadata attached to them telling what build it was. And that's actually in collaboration with Debian. Um, so that uh, when there's a crash report, um, you can see you know exactly what build that is, even across distros. And even if you're using containers or flat packs or whatever to you know, mix and match binaries from different sources, we'll be able to kind of see, okay, this you know, crash report matches to this actual build here. Um, So that's not something that is very user facing, but kind of under the hood things that will eventually make the experience better. And especially that one makes things better for developers in a lot of ways.
0: With
2: Fedora 37, there is some talk of having ARM 7 support removed. So kind of looking into the future, Matthew, why was the decision, or why is the decision being considered to remove support for ARMv7? What are some examples of some ARMv7 hardware? And how much of that hardware is there out in the wild? Will users even notice?
3: Yeah so um the original Raspberry Pi and then up through the Pi 0. So the Pi 0 2 is now the newer generation so that's um one, one of the reasons um and yeah that's a $15 device that's uh, not too bad that you can get um but yeah, yeah, there is quite a bit of that hardware out there, although it is a pretty small fraction of Fedora Linux users in using it. And um, it's a, since it is an older architecture, like it often slows down our builds. So when um, we do a build um, in Fedora in our build system, uh, uh, unlike some other distros, actually all of our package builds are done in a central data center, um, which kind of means we've got control and we know what's going on there with all, where all the package builds come in. Um but it, and they're actually built for uh the x86 32-bit 64-bit power pc um s390 mainframe architecture and then two arm architectures um at hopefully adding risk 5 soon so it's all that's all built simultaneously and you know having a slower architecture in there actually slows down everything so there's a cost to it for us um and it also is kind of a maintenance burden to have a different architecture for you know the arm team having to diagnose oh this is something that was specific to that architecture and things like that so reducing those things reduces overhead and lets us focus on you know what what's uh, making the things we do support better uh, and it seemed like is probably time in this architecture to move on to the newer thing i know that there will be people who are disappointed um there are you know other other distros that can cater to those things probably a little better.
2: Matthew Miller, he is the Fedora Project lead and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah Show. Matthew, thank you again for taking the time to join us on the program. Of course, we'll have you back on the program. Open invitation anytime. We'll get you back real soon.
3: Yeah, cool. I'll be glad to come back.
2: Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Matthew. I think we have Steve reconnected. Hey, Steve. I should be here now. You are here now. So I I saved this email because I I really think you do it more justice than I would, but uh, Jeremy wrote in and said, Hey Noah and Steve, thanks so much for keeping us informed and educated on all things Linux. I have two unrelated questions. The first of which, I can run Fedora 35 on my Panasonic Toughbook CFC2, which I have the drive encrypted and set to auto login due to the fact that I've already entered the drive encryption password. However, it always comes up with a keyring prompt for a password. I would like the system to also automatically unlock the keyring. My second question regarding the same laptop, On the screen, there are buttons that I assume I can hotkey somehow. I would like to hotkey one or two of these buttons to rotate the screen. If I have to settle for a keyboard combination hotkey, I guess that would be fine as well. Also, on another note, if there's a way to use the built-in sensors to allow for auto rotate, that would be awesome. Keep spreading the Linux knowledge and have a great day, Jeremy. So, Steve... Thoughts on Hot King. Essentially, what he's trying to do is get a button on the laptop when he pushes it to execute uh, uh, either a series of of things or just a thing. What would you say the best way to go about doing that would be?
1: So in the past, I've done quite a bit of this uh, back in the XBMC days and the early Cody days when I'd have, you know, like a random controller that I wanted to do a thing. And so I'm not sure if it still applies under Wayland, but under X. There is a utility called XEV, and it stands for X Events. And essentially, you launch this thing in the terminal, and then you push buttons. And as you push buttons, it will give you lots of information, like the button ID, the hex code, you know, tons of stuff like that. And with this information, you can use another application called XMODMAP, and you take the information that you got from XEV. And use XmodMap to map it somewhere. So, for example, I would push a button on, um, back in the day, there were, like, the, we- the Windows Media Center remotes. And they had, like, a Windows logo that actually worked as a button right in the center of the controller. Okay. And if you'd push that under XEV, it would give you a bunch of gibberish. And then you could say, okay, if you see this button, react as if you hit the letter R on your keyboard. And then you could do whatever with the letter R inside of Cody, So you could do something similar here. As for um, rotating the screen using the, the built-in sensors, it has been my experience that this is hit and miss. Um, I've had several devices where I've actually just given up on it trying to figure out how to rotate them properly because um, it's my opinion that it's some magic that's done in the driver. Like I have a two-in-one that like flips back And it will rotate the screen the wrong direction from what Linux thinks. And I have to assume that this is just a driver issue. And so instead, I've taken to what he's intending to do and basically put a key combination on my laptop that when I'm folding it over, I just hit that key combination so it rotates the screen into the right direction. Very
2: cool. Our uh, fourth email comes in and is from Jeremy Jeremy writes in and says hey there quick question can one run Google store apps on Ubuntu phones he's talking about UbiPorts. ports I'm thinking I would like to get a used phone and try Ubuntu phone or UbiPorts, ports but I may want some apps that are only found on the Google Play Store best Jeremy so the most straightforward answer is Ambox been around for a long time so that's an option however uh, WayDroid is a much newer and, and, and has far more active development behind it than Anbox. Also, doesn't require the Google services framework. Now, I will tell you, I am not an expert on the topic, but so far as I understand it, they, Google is changing the way that they are, uh, administrating some of their apps such that you have to have Google services for the apps to work. And so, I might see if I can bring in a typical kernel. Are you in the Matrix room?
0: Yes, I am. Can you explain? Yeah. Right. So, slight correction. Um, Neither Anbox nor Waydroid require the Google Services Framework. Um, There are a lot of apps that, irregardless of Google's changes, will refuse to run without the Google Services Framework. Um, However, you can use a... Third-party unofficial store called the Aurora Store, which is available in F-Droid, and download applications from the Play Store as long as they still are making the APK available, which they have so that stopped, is a
2: way which they've stopped doing on some newer apps. Right there is there is a push or there was a change that they pushed out. So
0: Go- yeah, so Google is trying to push everything that direction. Um, it's still up to the developer Um, last I checked. So it's going to be hit or miss depending on the app you want to use. I mean, I use F-Droid and the Aurora Store on Lineage OS on an Android device, and that is actually what WayDroid is based on. Their environment is based on a stripped-down Lineage for their runtime.
2: Gotcha. I appreciate it. Thanks for chiming in. Yeah. So, uh, we'll check that out. We'll have a link for both WayDroid as well as the Aurora store, as well as FDroid in the show notes. You can get those com. I, show's all out of order this week, and that's okay. It's live radio. This is what we do. So, uh, Steve, I want to talk to you a little bit about Fedora. We talked to Matt and, and got an, uh, Matthew, and got an idea of what's new in Fedora 35. Now, it's been articulated by me numerous times that, I have used Fedora since Fedora Core 1. I've upgraded my installation. I've nuked and paved. And what I have found consistently time and time again is the way to get the best experience from a Fedora install is to let it bake for a few weeks. Because if you try to run in production on day one, I find all sorts of little paper cuts. And I will give it to the Fedora team. On Fedora 35, I have experienced less of those than I have on previous releases, but they are still there. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your experience because despite the fact that you're a Red Hat guy, um, you have on some of your personal machines have run Arch. And when Fedora 35 came out, you said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take one of my laptops and I'm going to load it up with Fedora 35. I'm going to run with it and see how it's working. So how's it working?
1: So I want to preface this by saying I ran Fedora 28 through 32 on a laptop that I use fairly frequently. And I enjoyed the process. I did, like you said, I lagged behind before doing upgrades. This time around, I took my laptop and I, and I wiped it and I put Fedora 35 on there. Now I checked my download date. I downloaded the ISO November 5th. So I probably did the install November 6th or 7th. Um, so just to give you some idea, it's been about somewhere between 15 and 20 days that I've been using it. And uh, I guess the use case is I do obviously business related stuff. So I do stuff related to OpenShift. I do SSH. I use my web browser to do things. You know, I have Telegram, kind of normal workload. Uh, No gaming on this laptop because it's got the Intel graphics. So that's kind of the use case. And um, for the most part, I thought, you know, hey, this is going pretty good. And then. Last week, I decided that I was going to start sequencing lights on my Christmas tree with my Raspberry Pi. And so I started working on that. And I started running into this issue where this laptop that I'm using is always on Wi-Fi, just because that's how I use my laptops. And so I SSH into the Raspberry Pi to, to run my test code and stuff like that. And the connections would hang as if you put the computer to sleep and then opened it up again, and they just hang. What I found just doing my troubleshooting was, if I SSH'd into a host that was wired, like a server or whatever, and then pinged the Raspberry Pi, my sessions would come back on the Fedora box. But it wouldn't matter whether the session had been sitting for a while, or I was literally actively typing in the Python repo, the connection would just freeze from time to time, and that kind of drove me crazy. And then I was doing some hardware hacking, as I do, and there's a GitHub project out there that um, you basically run some code and then launch your, your Chrome browser, Chrome or Opera, and that's how you configure this project. So I did a DNF install Google Chrome and didn't think much of it, except the fact that it was actually in the repos. That was nice. Um, but it actually gave me Google Chrome unstable, and I didn't realize this until I went to go file a bug against this project because I wasn't seeing the options that I thought I should see according to the screenshots in the readme. As I'm going to file this bug, I realized that I'm running the unstable version. I go back to my command history. I'm like, nope, I definitely just typed Google Chrome. And so I actually had to go back and do a DNF install Google Chrome dash stable. And that got me the results that I was expecting. So I just I had a bunch of these little paper cuts where, um, you know, for the most part, it was okay. You know, suspend and resume worked really well, as I would expect it to on Intel hardware. Uh, I didn't notice any performance. The battery life was good. Um, And I wonder whether, now that I've been thinking about it, I was listening to Matthew Miller talking about the the new power settings. And I wonder whether that's something to do with the power settings. I have no idea, but uh, I eventually put that laptop down because I couldn't, I couldn't deal with the break in my SSH sessions while I'm actively using it, it just at one point I then wanted to throw my laptop because I thought the Raspberry Pi was broken like I kept getting up to check the Pi like plug a laptop or a monitor into it and like no it's it's still functioning so I, I had to put that laptop
2: down for now. I would like to say I'm surprised, but that again, that has been my experience with Fedora. It'll be interesting, Steve, to see in a few weeks if you circled back to this, if you pick that laptop back up and in, in let's say let's say the first week of December, and you you pick it up, update it, and see if those issues are still there, um, because a lot of times what I find is after a few weeks it it they they just kind of go away. And that there's my box that's sitting downstairs that I I love and treasure, and have had running fedora everything from fedora core one i've not upgraded it yet to fedora 35 and i likely won't do so until at least after the thanksgiving break i might wait until i have some time on my hands at christmas and um might nuke and nuke and pave that baby but interesting to hear your experiences hey i want to uh cover some of the picks this week because there there's some cool stuff that we've run into so this actually came to us in the geek lab uh we'll have a A link for you in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com, but it's called the YouTube Spammer Purge. And what it allows you to do is purge all comments left by a particular user on a specific video across your entire channel. And if if you're an independent content creator, then one of the things that you, lesson you learn early on is you just don't look at the comments. You don't look at the comments because that's not where productive feedback for your show comes, at least in most cases. And the problem with doing that is you, uh, wind up with spam on, 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 on a lot of your pages. And so this isn't going to prevent spammers from posting on your page. But what it does is it makes it much easier to delete them when they show up. And so hopefully someday YouTube will get around to implementing some of the tooling for this so that it, this is a native feature of YouTube. But for now, the fact that there is an open source project called YouTube Spammer Purge is super helpful. So I would invite you to check that out. Again, we'll have links for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. In the news this week, Streamlabs has promised to remove OBS from the name of its live streaming software. So Streamlabs OBS, commonly abbreviated slobs, uh, following backlash from streamers and the open source uh, community got upset because... OBS says they've asked Streamlabs not to use their name. OBS, the open broadcaster software, the software that we use to stream Ask Noah show each week, right to your ears, um, they've been around for a few years, a very popular streaming platform, that, or streaming software, rather, I should say, um, that has come onto the stage and just taken it by fire. It, it has now become the default standard for people who want to stream on the internet. And the controversy came up Actually, previously, when a company called Lightstream, another live streaming app, tweeted screenshots of its website right beside Streamlabs saying, Hey, can I copy your homework? suggesting that Streamlabs simply just ripped off Lightstream. And so now, as this is coming out, that they're trying, that people are getting upset because they essentially hack on OBS to their platform and. People that are using it are thinking this is coming from the actual OBS people, and so they're getting upset with billing issues and all sorts of things coming back to the OBS team, and the OBS team is saying, hey, guys, time out. This isn't our product. Yes, we released the code as open source. Yes, the source code is publicly available. If they wanted to fork it or they wanted to use it, I guess we don't have a problem with it, but could you possibly change the name to something to reflect the fact that you're an entirely different entity that has absolutely no connection with us whatsoever? And oh, by the way… If you were so concerned about using our name and weren't going to listen, then why did you ask us in the first place if it was okay to use our name and then we told you no? So this is fairly embarrassing for Streamlabs, right? Streamlabs later responded to the accusation in a tweet stating that it's going to take immediate steps to remove OBS from its product name. It also notes that Streamlab OBS is built on top of the OBS open source platform and that its own platform is also open source. It's an interesting excuse. Um, so I hope they get that straightened up and a huge kudos to the folks over at OBS for what they're doing, because uh, it's it's pretty it's a pretty fantastic piece of software. And it's there are other examples of this in Linux to where you have a piece of software you say, well, this has kind of become the de facto standard in for its kind. Um, OBS is certainly one of those things I, I want to draw your attention to a security update that actually came from Synapse so uh, Synapse I believe it's 1.47 came out and there was a pretty huge security flaw the security uh, vulnerability was that uh, an attacker was able to under the right circumstances be tricked into downloading a file from a remote server and that server could potentially store that file outside of the designated media directory, which is, of course, that's a pretty big deal. Um, And so they have released a new version of Synapse. It's 1.47.1. And if you are using Synapse, if you're an element or Synapse user, you're absolutely going to want to update um, to take advantage of that security patch. So Again, more information will be available in uh, in the actual article over at podcast dot com. But you'll you'll want to do that. And the other thing is, uh, I'll just take a moment to say they uh, looking through the latest uh, release notes for uh, Element and and Synapse. There's a lot of cool features that are finally landing. So threading. Um, is finally here. If you're using the beta or nightly version of Element, you now have the option to do message threading. Uh, do not disturb is a function that has come out. And so a lot of the things that those of us that have used other messaging platforms and have said, hey, I'm kind of digging my heels in on Matrix. I'm going to hang out here for a little bit. There are some features that have been missing. Pinning messages, another one. And uh these things are finally coming to fruition and about to land. And so last I looked, they are looking to land um, the message threading in iOS and Android next. They have they have it, the UI mostly tweaked and polished uh, for the web UI, and so are moving on to mobile development. And so that will be uh, super exciting. So, Steve, uh, apologies for the connection problems uh, today, but uh, it's a pleasure having you join me. Well, I'm glad we were able to get it worked out. Uh, do you know anybody that's looking for an open source job?
1: That's a good question. I know that I know a few people that that have kind of settled for something that weren't wasn't open source because they couldn't find what they were looking for easily.
2: Uh, where are you going with this? Well, so TrueUp.io has a a bunch of listings. Um, a bunch of listings to mean. Uh, over 9,000 job listings right now, open source job listings, everything from information security principal detection engineer to uh, mixed methods researcher. They have senior software engineer positions available right now. The world is looking for labor and open source is no exception. And so we'll have the link to trip.io linked in the show notes and you can check that out. But if you're one of the people that listen to the show because you say, hey, I'm an open source professional and I work in this environment or maybe you're looking for a new job. Um, believe me, there are places out there that are hiring and you'll want to check those out. Nine thousand jobs available if you're working. And the nice thing is many of these jobs are likely to be done remotely. And so might be time to think about a new career. Maybe you've thought about moving into open source. might be time to do that. Hey, the music in our ears means we're out of time, but don't worry. You can still stay connected to both Steve and I. We're both on Twitter. He's at Linux Evans. I'm at Linux. The show is at Ask Noah Show. We record this show every Tuesday night at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us live at AskNoahShow.com or join us in our interactive matrix room. You can join there at GeekLab.Ninja. The Ask Noah Show will return next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.